1: If you spend money on education, especially R&D and science and technology, you're getting the money back. You're simply lending it to the future. It really is um, that simple.
0: You're listening to the National Security Podcast. The show that brings you expert analysis, insights and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm David Andrews. Today's podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Nambri people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. Today I'm joined by Dr. Raji Rajagopalan, Dr. John Hemmings, and Professor Akira Agata for a discussion about the Quad Tech Network. Raji is the Director for the Center for Security, Strategy, and Technology at the Observer Research Foundation. John is Senior Director of Indo Pacific Foreign and Security Policy Program at the Pacific Forum and Akira is a project lecturer and the director of the economic security research program at the research center for advanced science and technology at the University of Tokyo. Welcome Raji John and Akira.
2: Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you. Well, thanks. Thanks
0: again uh, for all being with me today for this discussion that follows on from our recent Quad Tech Network uh, Track 1.5 dialogue that you all attended uh, earlier in September. You know, overall, what we're talking about here is critical and emerging technologies. That's that's what this relates to. That's one of the key working groups within the Quad as well. Uh, and so what we've observed, I think, over recent years is that one of the central pillars of the Quad's agenda has been this field of critical and emerging technology. So, um, so colleagues, I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate for me what you think is so significant about this as a, as a facet of international security and whether, in fact, the quad is a good body, is well-suited to responding to those kind of emerging challenges? Uh, Raji, perhaps we'll start with you.
3: Um, sure. Thank, uh, thanks, David. That's, uh, that's a great question to start. And uh, you are right. Uh, critical and emerging technologies have become an important aspect of the quad engagement in recent years. Um, and I think there are a few reasons as to why this is the case. Uh, new technologies such as artificial intelligence, robotic, machine learning, facial recognition, hypersonics, drones, and um, and some of the older technologies such as outer space, missile defense, uh, they have a major impact, major effect on the strategic dynamics in the in the Indo-Pacific region. And the most major power relations today are shaped by the geopolitical impact of these new technologies, and therefore. New technology being part of the quad conversation seems like something a very natural fit in a sense. So while technologies generally bring in uh, prosperity, advancements in societies, in today's uh, international political circumstances, uh, they have also been a source of increasing competition and rivalry, which, are, which we are uh, seeing uh, playing out here. There are a couple of issues here that I would like to um, see uh, why the Quad has picked up and why that will continue to be the case for some time. One is cooperation in the development of technology so that um, countries or uh, powers that are inimical to free societies do not gain an uh, undue advantage in developing some of these advanced technologies. Um, And uh, cases are advanced computing, telecommunication technologies such as 5G and research into 6G, Um, artificial intelligence. These are some of the examples. Uh, The second issue is in terms of the governance uh, of certain areas of technology and its implementation so that technologies do not hinder the rights of all states and their developmental opportunities. So unless we are able to come together to, to formulate new rules of the road, or review some of the existing ones, such as for the outer space and missile defense issues, we are facing the possibility of all states using technology in a useful manner that may not really pan out in a sense. And China's rise um, and the regional strategic uncertainties that have come about have compelled like-minded states, such as the the Quad partners, uh, to come together to help shape a more stable, secure, prosperous Indo-Pacific. And we, there are possibilities of expansion to include um, other countries in the in, in later, um, other like-minded and also technologically capable countries such as um, uh, South Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, and a whole host of other countries into this mix. But the fact is that given the kind of growing competition in the technology domain that we see between China, and the others in the region, this new focus of the Quad on technology is much needed. Uh, In fact, it can ensure that technology is developed and used in line with the principles of a free, open, and uh, inclusive, and resilient Indo-Pacific. And writing new rules for critical and emerging technologies is a key imperative, I would say. Um, So expect the Quad countries to continue um, to emphasize on this particular aspect. And I think Quad is a perfect place to deb- debate and discuss many of these issues because given the state of multilateralism, given the state of multilateral negotiations that we see today, discussions on standards, uh, the way uh, we design and develop technologies, or uh, frame new rules of the road to regulate the kind of use in which these technologies are put to, uh, in a sense, they need to happen in small minilateral groupings because multilateralism is not going to deliver on that. So if minilateralism has to be able to develop that sort of consensus that is much required at this point of time, I would think Quad is a perfect uh, uh, forum uh, to discuss and to later on take it to a larger platform. But I think the Quad can be the first starting point there can be other trilateral, other minilaterals as well, but Quad ESA is a good body, I would say, uh, to start the debates on some of these issues.
0: All right. Uh, perhaps John will turn to you now.
1: Yeah, thank you so much uh, uh, for organising the podcast and, uh, again, uh, David, for, you know, the Australian National University organising uh, the Track 1.5. I think we all learned a lot, and I think um, the, the writing... Uh, process helped uh, a lot of our authors come up with very concrete proposals. I think um, the Quad uh, is absolutely emerging as one of the focal points for uh, critical and emerging technology cooperation, but it's not the only one. We saw uh, most recently, you know, yesterday, for example, uh, the launch of the Partnership for Atlantic Cooperation, 32 countries working on economic development as well as critical and emerging tech. We've also seen uh, the Five Eyes talking increasingly about technology, not just at the intelligence community side, but beyond developing. And, of course, the subset of the Five Eyes, the AUKUS, uh, very much looking at some of these similar technologies, quantum, uh, AI, and so on, but more towards the military space. Uh, And then, of course, semiconductors uh, with the United States, Japan, Korea, and and occasionally Taiwan, uh, according to the meeting. So there's all these various meetings taking place. But I think what gives the Quad the most potency is um, the fact that um, India brings with it an immense appetite for um, talking to the global south and in in a battle for international standards, in a battle for pushing technology standards that are more democratic than authoritarian I think that, that heft and that weight in spaces like the ITU mean that um, it's an incredibly important, sh- you know, mover. And indeed, also on, on the tech development side, what India brings in terms of uh, labor, of just the sheer number of engineers and STEM grad students that India throws at it. Obviously, Japan, the United States can compete fairly well in that space, but the numbers that India brings really make the quad I think more potent as um, as the broader forum for these critical emerging discussion uh, technology discussions and developments, and I certainly think that um, as we go forward, we will see these various mini-laterals sort of settle. I think in specific areas, you may see, for example, uh, the Quad become more and more about standard setting. We might see it actually delivering on um, you know goods for across the region, for example. Um, You know, Raj mentioned uh, ICT or or, um, telecoms uh, infrastructure, whereas I think that when it comes to, for example, AUKUS or something like that, what we will probably see more of is, you know, small bespoke projects that um, develop out certain key um, dual use technologies that have military use that are probably not going to emerge in the the public space uh, in the near future. But with that, um, yeah, broadly, I think it really brings in that uh, global community uh, and the reach across the Indo-Pacific region.
0: And just before we go to you, Akira, I think, Raji, you had something you wanted to follow up with
3: yeah just very quickly i like the point john brought out about the uh, why the quad is particularly important because of the indian uh, indian participation and i think that's important because india has uh, india does not traditionally belong to uh, the us security alliance partnerships uh, india has had a very different history and now that india if india is able to be part of this kind of a grouping that works on developing standards, developing uh, um, sort of guidelines, best practices in terms of how we develop these technologies To And also, I think the point about bringing global south, I think that's a very valid point because how do you bring more countries uh, into the Quad Trend at least get more countries to believe in what the uh, the Quad principles are, uh, what it stands for, how it wants to develop these technologies. So getting the voice of the south through India, uh, India becoming something like a bridge power. Um, a bridge power is too strong a word for the role India might play. But I think something to the idea of a bridge power, bringing in a larger developing world, the global south. I think that's a very important perspective. I just wanted to echo um, uh, John's thoughts on that.
2: Absolutely. Thank you. Um, Akira, we'll turn to you now. Sure, uh, once again, thank you so much for inviting me to this podcast. So uh, to me, what surprised me the most about this quad tech conference was how the nature of the discussion changed compared to the past. I mean, if we look back at how, how the quad started, it really started as a strategic dialogue. Right. So uh, if I remember correctly, the focus has been more on the traditional security side of things. Um, I mean, it was accompanied by naval exercises and tabletop exercises. Now, I think the focus has really shifted onto the area of economic security, where economy and security overlaps, and critical and emerging technology is one of the key features of this economic security. I mean, for example, you look at the visa screening, export control, investment screening. These are all ways to protect our emerging technologies. Uh, We talked a lot about uh, engaging in outbound investment screening, and this is about slowing the growth of technology development in authoritarian states. Um, I think we talked also a lot about research cooperation on some of these critical emerging technologies so that we can move ahead and develop these technologies. So um, I think uh, the shift from traditional security to perhaps a non-traditional security side is one of the fundamental changes we have seen in the last decade or so. And then in terms of how CET is becoming important for the Quad specifically, I think uh, Raji and John already put it uh, uh, perfectly. So I want to maybe touch upon the potential uh, pitfalls of cooperation among the Quad in this area. And I want to mention two things. Uh, one, increasing resilience in this uh, emerging and critical technologies among the four countries is, of course, critical. De-risking is important. Uh, diversification is important, Uh Choose whichever phrase you like. I think it all means the same thing. But anyways, um, whether you want to de-risk or diversify or increase resilience, we have to make sure that this doesn't, doesn't result in protectionism. Right. Um, so if we say we need to diversify away from certain countries, but we all ended up uh, reshoring everything, Japan doing its own thing, India doing its own thing, US, Australia all doing its own thing, then I think that's going to really hurt our innovative ecosystem. So we have to harmonize how we cooperate on that issue. Um, Another quick point is, I think Raji also lightly touched upon this, but uh, the quad is only one of the numerous mineral fora out there. So we really have to think about what issue is the most critical for the quad to talk about. And of course, quad can be a talk shop and talk shop isn't necessarily bad. Right. Uh four countries come together, we can talk about certain things, and then we might decide maybe the quad isn't the best place to continue this discussion and then bring it on to other areas. Perhaps it's the G seven, perhaps it's the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, IPEF, perhaps it might be something else. But I think it's important to avoid the pitfall of trying to do everything at the quad.
0: No, I think that's I think that's very astute. And um I think what to, to pick up on a few points that you've all raised, uh both, there's that the balance of the strategic competition part, as you say, you're curious of that that original, perhaps more strategic essence of the quad uh, where it started, but also that uh, that emphasis on delivering public goods was one that I think was was really stressed a lot in the conversations we were having. Is that, um, and I think particularly in the in the tech and um, uh, and sort of economic security space that has a, a broader utility, perhaps for for more countries in the region, and has a regional benefit. But I was quite struck by um, sort of a few people in the room over the, the few days referring to this potential for the Quad as, as being a standard setting body, which is a very different sort of in conceptual pivot from where we would have really thought of the Quad in the first instance, um, and. And this is a point that I think that, that Dirk made in in our conversation on the podcast uh, a little while ago was around that if you want to to lead in standard setting or in regulation or in governance, like you said, Raji, that you actually have to be leading in the technology as well. You can't sort of you can't govern from behind. You have to be at the front of that technology to set the standards. Uh, and I think that's one of the areas where there was a lot of at least aspiration from within um, within the QTN and within the Quad is to with with our respective uh, national sort of whether skill sets or assets, and, and as you say, John, there are different things, say, that India brings versus what Japan or Australia, the United States, that together, um, that that there's a great potential to to build on each other. And I, I want to get to that point of uh, the risks around, say, perceived or actual cartilization later on um, that, that Akira sort of touched on. But uh, and, and I think we're already – we might have already responded to this a little bit, but I think it's also an opportunity for us to reflect on where perhaps – Uh, you know, the quad needs to improve. So I think we've looked at some of the different strengths that the quad has and whether that's in its makeup or its outlook and the flexibility that comes with being a minilateral entity uh, in a world of somewhat more ponderous multilaterals, um, that that dynamism probably lends itself to to greater efficacy. Uh, But I think at least personally, I'm a little worried that the quad has become broader than it has become deep. And we've tried to take on maybe a few too many things without really delivering explicitly on a lot. And there's not sort of a, a quad stamp you can put on a box of, of COVID vaccines coming off a plane somewhere, and it just sort of disappears a bit into the ether. So I was wondering if, if you had any reflections on, I mean, maybe not necessarily specifically to do with, with tech, but generally um, where you think the quad could improve both its, I suppose, its, its image, but also its, its output and its actual um, results. And um but, why don't we stick with the same sequence? Raji we'll, we'll turn to you first?
3: um sure, uh, that's again uh, good to look at the what are the pluses and minuses and what can uh, w- what do we need to where do we need to focus in terms of uh, improving the quad's ability to deliver. And I think the fact that the quad is flexible and agile are some of its core strengths, uh, and of course, failure of multilateralism to deliver on any agenda that worth its name has pushed for smaller institutions, minilaterals, and of course, the among the minilaterals, Quad really stands out in terms of the um, it's the uh, the kind of countries that have come together in framing the new rules and so on and so forth. The Quad is flexible and has a certain amount of openness to bringing in other like-minded partners to generate conversations on all of those issues whether it is tech design tech development and tech how it's going to be used so developing those regulations rules of the road Uh, but there are problems that we are all democracies and have to meander our way through our respective bureaucracies and those kind of delays that's a serious issue to deal with unlike China when it puts together FBRI or a tech development and so on and so forth they can get the uh, the emperor can actually issue the orders and it shall be done. Uh, there is no questioning further uh, about it. And the resources that China had its has has at its uh, at its disposal is also another factor, which is again uh, there is a certain amount of resource crunch even within the quad. And so, how do we make maximize the uh, benefits, maximize our uh, advantages in terms of developing these technologies and so on and so forth? So. And the first issue that I see where we need to improve things is in terms of the uh, getting the bureaucracy to work in a slightly more accelerated pace um, so that because otherwise that will continue to be a drawback with all of the democratic societies like ours. But if you can accelerate the decision making process, especially within the bureaucracies, I think that is something that will help us a great deal. Uh, second is the like I touched upon the resource issue. So the, we need vast amount of resources in terms of our ability to uh, develop uh, and you touched upon, uh, um, you know, delivering to the um, uh, public good of the service society. So whether it is the 5G technologies, uh, if you want to be able to offer something to other partners who are developing uh, countries, again, the sources are something that we really have a, a serious issue with. And I think one possible way to address that is through a bigger participation of private sector. So how do you bring in the private sector as a more independent capable actor that can actually start uh you know putting its money on its uh uh, in terms of uh, financial resources in terms of ability to come up with uh, framing guidelines best practices good practices that we need to have whether it is a cyber in terms of cyber resilience or in terms of um, sort of uh, how we how responsibly we use AI or a whole lot of, a whole uh, host of uh, technology we can talk about so the private sector role in terms of resources in terms of training in terms of developing standards guidelines best practices on all of this so to me I think there are two areas that we really need to work on are one, to get the bureaucracy to speed up the process in terms of how we come to decision making. And because these are essentially a follow-up to the leadership level decision that have been taken. So the bureaucracy, you know, doesn't have to deliberate on how it's going to be done and so on and so forth. There is some nitty gritties to be worked out, but I think it's essentially implementation of the leadership level decision that are being done. So if that process can be accelerated, I think that's a great thing. Second is, of course, the private sector participation in order to step up the resource crunch that we might feel otherwise, what um, if one were to compare it with uh, what uh, China has been able to offer and so on and so forth. So I think that's, uh, those are two things, two areas, I think, that we need to uh, look at uh, working on in terms of what's the ability to deliver.
0: Thanks, Raji. Over to you, John.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a really great question, and um, I've been thinking about it a lot. There's really two layers of response: the first response relating to the Quad more broadly as an institution, and then second to the QTN, the Quad Tech Network, and what it's becoming. So I think in the first instance, you know, the question is: there was a decision. I think um, you know, Akira is absolutely right, and Raj is correct. You know, we've moved away from providing security for each other. Um, but we mustn't forget, despite our worries that ASEAN will frown upon a security grouping at the end of the day, we didn't just come together for no reason at all. There is implicitly um, you know a China element in this the way that China perceives technology, it has a sort of zero-sum approach towards tech development um, and is very aggressively building out its own technology uh, strategy for the world. And so I think we in a sense as a grouping, we have to be a bit more open and relaxed with the region that we're trying to build an alternative vision. Now I understand that maybe the current political realities um, are, you know, work against it being a security grouping with a, a an Article Five or something. So in in that place, what do what are we? What do we do? And I don't think we really have clarified that our vision is to show that the next 100 years is not going to be a Chinese order in the Indo-Pacific. It's going to be a, a really, truly multilateral order, one in which India has a, a strong stake, one in which the United States, Japan, and Australia's interests are also met. And I sometimes think we lose sight of that. So, you know, we're not creating the same vision it, by its very nature as a multilateral grouping. We can, be, we can be diverse. And I think there's some beauty in that, and it also m- will make us – somewhat attractive to uh, regional countries when we offer a different development model and we offer technologies and we offer uh, equipment. Now, let's get to the weakness. Are we offering those things? So we could, but we're not there yet. And why aren't we there? Well, for one, we've gotten started very late. China's already, uh, you know, already into its game. It has a digital strategy. It has a cyber strategy. cyber global power strategy. It is very forcefully worked through the digital Silk Road to push out its standards and its technologies. So quickly on the side of strengths of the quad versus the weaknesses, and I'll just list them before handing over to Akira. Strengths, as I mentioned before, we have a massive population. If you add India, if you add the GDP of uh, all four countries, we're right up there as an economic superpower. Uh, We have great Uh, in an industrial base across the four that is incredible, wonderful research and education sectors that, you know, are the the envy of the world. And I can list off a number of universities and research programs and companies, and and we would all agree. The problem is, the weaknesses are we're not very uh, sure how the state can encourage the private sector to do these things. When we look at things like education for STEM and science, I'm sort of shocked that not Any of the four countries is really looking to add more resources from the state level. We're all asking the private sector to take care of it. That stands very, very wrong to my eyes when I think about the Cold War and how the United States really stepped up before the Cold War with the Soviet Union and invested, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in our own defense industrial base into our own research and, and uh, development infrastructure. So I think if we're going to build out the next generation of AI coders, the next generation of uh, 6G uh, you know, engineers, we can't just throw the private sector to do it and and stand from afar with a group of academics like ourselves trying to dictate. So I do think um, it's finding that balance between public and private partnership to answer some of the real problems we're going to have. And I only mention. Uh, you know, the developing out this S&T labor force, which is one of the big ones I caught from the, the conference. But others include, if we are going to build out infrastructure for the region and we see some small case studies here and there, of course, in the Pacific Islands, um, you know, this is great, but uh, we, if we really are going to compete with the digital Silk Road or offer the region alternatives, we're going to have to really step up the game. And again, I think that's going to require resources. So back to what Raji had said, Resources are everything, and the state can't do a light version of this. We can't tell the private sector, you have to do everything, and we're just going to tell you to do it. Uh, I'll leave it with Akira.
2: Sure. So uh, I completely agree with uh, what Raji and John said. So trying to pick up on things that they haven't really touched upon. Um, David, going back to your point on how uh, quad can uh, perhaps be a standard-setting body, Uh, the quad has to be leading in the technology. Um, I completely agree with that assertion. Um, I mean, if you look at the uh, outer space rules during the Cold War period, it was basically the US and the Soviet Union that created all of the international standards and rules because they had the technology. Um, It doesn't make any sense for a country that can't get things up on the space to be part of this discussion. Anyway, so once again, I think this is critical. So in order to keep leading in areas where we're leading and to keep up in areas where we're perhaps struggling a little bit, um, I think there's a couple of things that we can do. Uh, One, uh, of course, cooperation, among the Quad is again important, but us four countries aren't the only one with advanced critical and emerging technologies, right? Uh, for example, you look at semiconductors, and you probably have to include the South Koreans or Singaporeans. If we want to create international standards and rules for artificial intelligence, then you've got many UK companies or Canadian companies that's really good with these technologies. Or in the area of bio-industry, biomanufacturing, you can't talk about this without Germany and Israel. So I think, once again, it's important that the Quad talk about this, but Quad is not the only place to talk about this. And in the end, I think we'll be moving towards an area where, depending on which technology we're talking about, the discussion may start at the quad, or even at the bilateral or trilateral level, go through the quad, and then in the end, it ends up in a minilateral where all of the countries with relevant critical and emerging technologies come together to talk about AI, or semiconductors, or bio, or quantum. Um, another important issue is, of course, how to effectively get the private sector buying, which has already been touched upon by Raji and John. And in this area, I just want to quickly note that the Japanese government has been working on the development of critical emerging technology through, I would say, five different aspects. Uh, One, identifying what kind of technology exists. Two, developing these technologies through subsidies. Three, fostering the application of these technologies. So basically creating a regulatory environment amenable for uh, placing products onto the market. Four, protecting these technologies. And five, This is something that the Japanese government hasn't been doing, but of course, slowing down the development of other countries through means such as outbound investment. And out of these five, uh, there are different areas that Quad can contribute for sure. But I feel like the most effective lower hanging fruit is number three, which is to create a regulatory environment that's amenable for placing product onto the market using these critical and emerging technologies. We'll be right back.
0: In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College, engaging minds for a secure Australia. I think that's uh, a point that you've all highlighted, I think, and one that, that was quite prominent in our discussions is that balancing of the public and private sector aspects of this conversation is that that while they, there is a really important place for government, uh, and I think Akira, that's a, an example of where that, that's played out. And you know each of our countries has government research and scientific bodies whether it's a CSIRO or, or a DST group in Australia and things like that, um, that that those play a vital role in, um, in developing technologies, in research, uh, but also we need the private sector involved to be able to produce things at scale, to do things more quickly, perhaps in a more unbound fashion that, that sits outside of the, the public sector. And yes, we also do have the research crunch that Raji talked about, but, like John said, we also, if we, if our governments believe that this is a serious matter that requires investment, we also have to invest. So, all these levers are being pulled and pushed in lots of different directions, which I think is one of the the great benefits of an event such as the QTN uh, and, and other similar initiatives. And, and there was one that um, that a number of our. Uh, our track two non-government colleagues attended that was hosted in San Diego uh, maybe a month or so beforehand, um, which was sort of the, the two events building into each other and, and in complementary areas of, uh, of conversation. But um, I think those kinds of 1.5 track or track two events that are bringing together the non-officials and, and presenting new ideas to government is a good way to support the agenda of the quad because uh, it. It can't deliver things itself. Uh, it's It doesn't have you know, a permanent secretariat and things like that. So it re- requires these supplementary um, conversations and, and ways of bringing in contestability, you might say, and bringing in new ideas and, and a bit of outside-the-box thinking. Um, so I think that's I, – I won't go too much further on there, but but probably actually one last point I wanted to, to highlight, which um, I think you raised in particular, John, is that – um, it's not as if this is a neutral environment in which the quad is the only body who is being proactive or negative, depending on which way you you, you spin it, right? In that it's as if the quad are the ones who are rocking the boat and, and creating disharmony in the region, when actually there are many different um, actors all around the world in, in, in different fields and in different instances who are doing things. International politics is not a stable, calm pond it's 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 flux, it's evolution. These things, um, you know, one thing generates a reaction, and a, and a reaction. Um, and I think that's important that we, we remember that the quid is not just um, something that's being imposed on a otherwise peaceful, stable, and harmonious region, but actually, whether it's China, whether it's North Korea, Russia, others, there, there are um, there are actors out there who are not necessarily. Um, Taking taking actions, making choices, which are which are interested in a wider public good or a wider regional good. Um, it doesn't mean that everything the Quad does is is right and fantastic, but it's not necessarily um, you know the big bad guy lurking in the corner and uh, and and rocking the boat. When actually there are good connections um, with ASEAN, with with the Quad plus members that I think Raji mentioned earlier, uh, with with other states in the region, that there is, and I think especially now uh, as as the substance or focus of the organisation has shifted a little bit, is looking for ways to be a really good actor in the region um, and engaging with those regional bodies that have perhaps a different purpose, uh, but but highlighting the the expertise or the the relevance where the Quad can supplement um, groups like ASEAN or the Pacific Islands Forum or G20, IPEF, so on. So it, it's all part of a um, a melange, if you will, of uh, of international institutions. that I think the, the Quad is finding its way in. What I'd like to pivot to now is, and this is something that again came up a lot in conversation over our a couple of days of the dialogue, is when it comes to tech initiatives. And I think we've started talking about this a little bit too. Uh, when it comes to tech initiatives and developing solutions in these sort of emerging critical technology fields, um, how much role? How much of a role does the Quad? Um, you know, in inverted commas, as an entity, how much of a role does the Quad have to play as opposed to Quad countries? And I think that's a useful distinction to tease out because um, how much agency does the Quad as an institution have, or is this just a good opportunity for our four countries and our four governments and private sectors and academics and such to get together and have those conversations to then go off separately and, and take actions? So it's that Um, institution versus countries question. So how much of a role does the quad have versus quad countries? And I I might um, flip things around and start with Akira this time, if that's all right.
2: Sure. Uh, On this question of institution versus the quad countries, I mean, I would say both are important. Right. Uh, for instance, uh, the quad can play an important role in working together, for example, to engage in capacity building on various issues of critical and emerging technologies and regulations and so on towards, let's say, Southeast Asian countries or South Asian countries or any countries interested in learning more about the impact of critical and emerging technology in these areas. And of course, there are things that the quad countries can do individually by uh, harmonizing our independent policies, whether domestic policy or foreign policy to push some of these agendas. Just
0: one more. Point that I think I might flag now that we did mention earlier, and Akira actually that you mentioned earlier, is around this um, risk of being or being perceived to be operating as a cartel. So when it comes to engaging the private sector and and trying to um, coordinate our responses or activities, that does run the risk of looking like uh, we're sort of operating outside of the, the sort of free and open global trading system. So um, how much of a risk does that present and how might the court go about addressing those concerns do you think
2: so that's definitely a risk, right? Uh, we might start saying that let's cooperate on, let's say, semiconductor supply chains. But if we start saying that, okay, Japan would be doing step one, uh India would be doing step two, US step three, Australia step four, and so on, then that's basically an international cartel. So I think it's important that what we're trying to do is to de-risk or diversify away from certain problematic countries that has a track record of engaging in economic coercion, but try and maintain a free... Uh, free trade regime, a free cooperation economic regime among other countries. So we can't say that, let's say that for this technology, Japan is the only country that can do this. Or, you know, it's for this part of it, it's only India and so on. We must say we have to basically de-risk from certain countries, but otherwise it should be a a free for all in a way. But then again, if we do that too much, then we end up uh, basically wasting our tax money because All uh, four countries and even other countries are now subsidizing a lot into these different areas of critical and emerging technologies. And if we all end up subsidizing in the same chain within the value chain, then a couple of years later, we're going to have an overcapacity of that certain period, a certain chain, and then we're all going to lose. So it's this really delicate balance between trying not to be protectionist, but trying to be open. And I actually don't really have a exact answer or a formula to say, this is the right balance for everything, right? I think it's going to be different for each of the technologies. And Quad would be a great place to actually talk about what this balance might be. Absolutely.
0: Um, Raji, perhaps I'll turn to you now.
3: Sure, thanks. Uh, I entirely agree with uh, what Akira-san said. But having said that, I think uh, I am a fan of uh, having more platforms, having um, uh, more conversations. Um, And I think that's uh, good um, uh, in the absence of one overarching body that is able to uh, bring everybody uh, under the same tent and talk about all the various issues, um, whether it is the Uh, Development of technologies, how they are going to be used, or even broader strategic issues and kind of thing. Today, in the Indo-Pacific, when you look at it, I think the absence of one overarching institution is a critical uh, issue, critical drawback. But in in, in the face of that, I would say, let's have more platforms, more conversations. So that we are able to generate um, uh, smaller consensus, smaller agreements on each of those small uh, one, uh, maybe issue based kind of uh, uh, coalitions can happen, issue based uh, agreements, smaller agreements can we can uh, aim at developing. And I think all of that can happen only in smaller settings, uh, because the fact that uh, multilateralism, again, I uh, said uh, uh, before, uh, has not been able to provide uh, clear uh, start with discussion. We don't even have effective discussions on many of these multilateral platforms uh, uh, at this point of time. So forget about even coming up with solutions. So we need more conversation and one that involves multiple stakeholders. Uh, I think that's the more important one in a sort of an inclusive platform where we are able to involve uh, the industry partners, the civil society and uh, other voices. I think that's something that is very critical um, uh, to see the kind of progress in the Quad agenda, uh, especially on technology related issues. And so even if Quad, uh, Quad is going to serve the uh, role of a body that would, Uh, try and coordinate, try and develop policy choices. I think that's not to be taken as um, uh, somewhat lightly and that's an important role. So the more we talk to each other, the more we understand each other's position, the better for us in terms of harmonizing are developing certain shared views and so on and so forth. And one thing that also came during the conversation in Canberra is the, um, can we do an exercise in terms of mapping of the technological strength in each of the quad countries? Um, and I, I think that identification uh, is important because then we know what we can bang on each other in terms of um the capability development, how do we complement each other so that the issue that um, uh, Akira San brought out is where can be partly addressed if we have a clearer understanding of what those technologies are, uh, what are those different strengths and how we can work together in a sense. So I think that's something that we really need to do, because at the end of the day the competitive dynamics in the technology domain, uh, particularly driven by China, is here to stay. And that is part of it, its function of the changing balance of our dynamics in the Indo-Pacific and beyond. And given this power Im- uh, imbalance that we see, this competition and possible disruptive use of these many of these technologies is going, uh, going to go up in many fold uh, in the coming years. So um, you might actually end up seeing a lot of the Cold War kind of competition that played out during the um, uh, between the U.S. and the U.S.S.R. Except that today technology has has a much bigger role in whether it is in conventional military operations or in the developmental agenda of various countries and so on and so forth, making it a particular target for a number of countries like uh, China and Russia. In fact. Despite understanding the consequences of the disruptive use of these technologies, China has, for instance, shown greater willingness to use these technologies in a disruptive fashion. So there is a critical need for us to um, engage in these conversations, develop, uh, help develop standards good practices and so on and so forth. So the more forums that we have, the more platforms, the more conversations we have is better in terms of identifying uh, how we can work together a better understanding in terms of the complementarities that, that we can bring to bear and make the quad deliver in its, uh, in the private schools.
0: Thanks very much, Raji and John.
3: Yeah,
1: I, I, uh, I want to come in and say that um, I think the, the, the two functions of the quad seem to be creating an internal, you know, uh, technology ecosystem is one that can be done at the research and development side. But I think, um, Akira is right it can't be done at the commercial delivery side as he says that's a cartel um, but what I do think is possible and something that um, you know China does every day they, they have uh, things like the China Africa Forum where you know a bunch of countries meet with China and they talk about development and they bring a lot of companies with them and there's companies from Africa companies from China. And so as much as you have the political sort of uh, discussions, you also have a lot of people trying to create commercial deals on the sidelines. You know, I don't think um, having a Quad Africa forum on trade would be a bad idea. That's certainly not cartelish. And you would absolutely invite uh, African companies as well as invite Quad companies. So in that sense, the Quad itself, yes, you could get a little bit of startup money from the States, and, and this is probably where they're right. All they need is, you know, commercial entities need a platform. And so development or trade uh, departments from the four could all co-host at a big conference annually in Africa. Remember, Africa is going to have 2.5 billion people in 2015. That's a lot of middle-class consumers. That's a lot of electronics buyers. That's a lot of infrastructure they need to build in the meantime. And so should we be acting like a cartel? No, but should we not also be acting as a provider and using the quad brand or the quad as an organizing principle yes absolutely we should be but it does require thought it does require you know pushing forward imagine if we had a, a quad 5g conference in the pacific islands this year and it was funded and you had companies from all the pacific islands coming in trying to develop their own solutions and that the you know state department or department of trade from all four countries sort of helped at least give the startup money to provide the conference but the other companies you know companies would have to come out bring their stands bring their information then you start to see the quad providing goods in which you know you're basically what the quad is doing is providing the dry firewood and the tinder and the companies can create their own fire right they can go off and create the businesses on the side so i don't i don't see any issues with that I think um, where it is going to be more difficult is, you know, on that first one, in terms of the internal development, there is going to be obvious limits on how we cooperate on, for example, rare earth minerals. How do we, you know, how do we divvy up the supply chain there? Who's going to do the dirty processing? Who's got most of the goods? Um, You know, every country, to some extent, wants rare earth sovereignty. You know, no one wants to be at the delivery end of that. So we have to, we have to build trust because not every country has a the processing capability, and environmental protection laws, but also b do they actually have the materials on you know in their country? So I think there's a lot to play for, um, but I think you know again and again I go to the delivery stage. What can we do for the region? What can we do? across the world that helps provide alternative choices and alternative vision of the future. And I think there's um, there's definitely something that the Quad can do as a brand, but not so much as a secretariat or as a sort of, um, you know, a NATO in Asia sort of thing.
0: No, I think it's always important in Quad conversations to, as you say, John, just to remind everyone that the Quad is not an alliance. We're not an Asian NATO. For now. None, none For of now. That business going on. And, uh, and hopefully... The more we say it, the more people actually remember it because it's it's a very different kind of organisation, and not everything has to be viewed through the lens of NATO. Um, which, putting my very you know, personal academic research hat on, that's sort of basically the whole premise of my PhD is looking at things that are like NATO but not NATO, and funnily enough, are very distinct and unique, and not everything is just an archetype of uh, of NATO and Article Five. And the Quad certainly isn't that, as I think this conversation has has demonstrated. Um, I think one point I just wanted to stress that, um, that, that stuck out to me from this conversation was around transparency. And I think that's a big area where the Quad can be very forward-leaning in these decisions or in these um, intentions or, or proposals is that when we are um, bringing our four countries together and the four private sectors and research bodies and such is that we should be leading by being transparent and in that way setting standards too not just in the technical standards of what what our our country develop but in how we conduct our diplomacy and how we conduct our our business is to be transparent and especially in a region where lots of countries are understandably cautious or skeptical of uh, of new entities like the quad or, or larger countries who um uh, are sort of creating bow waves that we need to be very Cognizant of those concerns and address them by being more transparent and more open and inclusive. And so, whether that's through um, sort of observer status or involving different, um, uh, you know, perhaps we could run more activities like this for a sort of a quad plus um, track two or one point five entity. That that there are ways of it bringing in civil society, um, bringing in the private sector, bringing in research bodies uh, that. That helps sort of feed up, not just wanting to feed down from governments, but feeding um, sort of in, in at that base level. But um, noting that our time is short, I might just turn to our last uh, sort of question now, which is really just um, from from each of you, uh, I suppose, seeking whether there are any any key reflections or observations um, in addition to what we've talked about today that you took away from the dialogue. Were there any key points or or um, pieces of research that stood out to you, um, or any just yeah, just any any key. Re- Reflections or observations on the QTN and your experience with it, um, and and that'll take us to time. So perhaps Akira, I'll start again with you.
2: Sure. Uh, quickly on your point about the quad not being a NATO, uh, I want to just leave everyone with a piece of uh, uh, thing to think about. Uh, Quad may not be a NATO, but can quad be an Asian 5 Eyes? Because now I feel like all of the discussions are becoming not just about information sharing among the quad, but it's becoming more about intelligence sharing among the quad. And, you know, if we start discussing this, then it's going to take another hour. So this is just for a food for thought. With regards to uh, my takeaways from the QTN, it's really the fact that uh, these kind of quad track two, track 1.5 dialogue on critical technology is critical. I mean, that was one of the major takeaways um, because this has a really important educational and socialization aspect. Um... Because once again, this issue of critical and emerging technology is hard. I mean, following all of these tech development, I think, is impossible. For example, uh, we had one session, one what was it, a 90-minute session on bio industry and bio uh, manufacturing. But in order to follow uh, all of the discussion that was going on there, um, after the conference, I was pulling up my uh, 1,000-page undergrad biology textbook and trying to understand what they were really talking about. And then in another session, now we're talking about AI. The next session we're talking about semiconductors and no one can follow all of this. And in order for us to become a little bit better at coming up with a more effective policy solutions, um, I think it's important that we solve the, what I like to call the Armageddon dilemma. Uh, what this is, is, um, you know, the movie Bruce Willis, uh, Armageddon, uh, they decide to train the oil drillers to become astronauts to try and break this astronaut. But then my argument has always been that maybe it was easier to train the astronauts to become the oil drillers than to make the oil drillers train as astronauts. And I think the similar thing is happening in our policy world in critical and emerging technology as well, where we had the Policy experts and think tankers those on one side who understand the policy issues, but doesn't really have a fundamental understanding of what technology, eh, technological issues are there. And then on the other side of the table, you got the tech experts on the private sector who understands how the private sector works and how the technology works, but doesn't really understand how the policy world works. And I think... Track 2, Track 1.5 gathering right the QTN is a great way to socialize and educate these two camps on each side, which allows, in the end, for the quote countries to engage in a more effective tech coordination.
0: Thanks very much. Uh, Raji, final word from you.
3: Yeah, um, uh, great. I think... uh Again, echo what, uh, what Akira-san said and think uh, uh, in terms of our ability to delve into greater detail on some of those uh, technologies, critical technologies in the context of each of those countries, what they're able to bring to bear, what are their core strengths. Uh, identifying uh, ability to identify some of those uh, areas was one of the uh, uh, sort of a highlight uh, in the meeting. But I think the having the right mix of different stakeholders in the room was particularly uh, impressive, particularly positive for me, uh, because at the uh, at the end of the day, if you have to be able to provide as an effective, uh, organized institutional mechanism uh, involving the different stakeholders in these kind of engagements, and I think. Again, I echo what Akersons and you need track one. To you need, but track one is not alone is not going to be able to deliver on all of those things. So you need track 1.5, track two-level dialogues, Um, uh, and whether it is a San Diego format or it's a Canberra format, we need all of them. We need more conversations of that kind. So involving the different stakeholders, having an inclusive format in that sense is very, very, um, uh, very, uh, uh, it's actually vital. Um, uh, finally, about the, uh, the those papers that we had provided for the Canberra Dialogue were very useful because they were, in a sense, uh, it, it was a nice, crisp format uh, with clear policy recommendations. Identifying those recommendations was a very useful way to kind of uh, have more constructive, very useful discussions because otherwise we end up, talking about issue-based, very heavy on the issues in terms of identifying all this issues. I think we all know what the issues are, but how do we practically think about those issues in terms of how each one can uh, bring their own strength, uh, become a complementary uh, uh, to the other partner, and so on and so forth. So coming up with those recommendations, policy recommendations was very, very useful, and I look forward to seeing the papers um, uh, sort of... uh, Uh, up uh, up and uploaded onto the uh, NSC website soon. Um, And uh, I think that would be a very useful uh, resource base for uh, all the policy uh, makers in all the four countries. But I think even other countries who may be interested in similar issues, have similar ideas and uh, policy um, choices that they want to make. Uh, can look at as to how quad they can also engage with the quad. So if you are looking at a quad plus at some stage and so on and so forth, or other minilaterals and so on and so forth, I think this becomes a sort of a useful platform, useful resource base for them to see how the quad is looking at things and how they can also engage in these kind of um, uh, smaller grouping uh, discussions.
0: Thanks, Raji. And uh, and finally, John.
1: Well, I've got three points. I think they're sort of they're a little bit of overlap with uh, the great points made by Raj and Akira. Um, number one, uh, I don't know how many people said visas, uh, but visas, visas, visas. Everyone thinks we need to be creating a community of interest, um, getting more STEM uh, grad students to each other's countries. You know, there's a 100 quad fellowships right now. That's a drop in the bucket as a drop in the ocean it's way 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 too small and there needs to be a, a you know rigorous look at the visa system so that we can really start to create uh, the point i made earlier about the the workforce shortages that we're going to have in snt it's so critical and these are like writing checks for yourself if you spend money on education especially r&d and science and technology you're getting the money back you're simply lending it to the future it really is um, that simple. And so I'm surprised, again, that the states are are not realizing this amongst the four and pushing more resources, more money towards that. Two, um, I sort of, you know, the whole pro- process, the QTN itself, um, I really wondered how, how effective and how long-lasting would the think tank role be? Um, you know, at some point, aren't the companies themselves and the engineers, aren't they going to want to talk policy amongst themselves? You know, are we merely a stopgap but I think um, Raji's right here. We do sort of have a role because the number of uh, engineers and tech sector people with policy experience is very small. As we've discovered, they're like unicorns. If you find one, you know, grab them. We've had a few come through. We we're really amazed by them. Super smart people on both maybe the defense policy side and biotech or what have you. Um, but there's still a a role for that, and I think think tanks. What we can do is we can start trying to reach out and find. We want more uh, tech and S and T people in the rooms so they can inform our thinkings on policy, but also so we can they can you know they can act as a bridge to their own communities of interest. And then the final point three is really just a great community building that I think I see happening with the specific group over San Diego and over uh, Canberra. You know, it was just a really great mood. Um, I'll end on a high note. You know, everybody was back slapping. We all knew each other's lots of little groups of people moving off and chatting. And I could see that both the U.S. and Australian and, and other government officials were really happy to see what they've done is sort of create momentum. And they can now see that we've got that momentum, that, that those communities are sort of edding out. And I'm sure our group, whether it's the uh, Quad Investors Network, or other, uh, you know, like minded groups, quad related groupings are starting to sort of bump into each other and starting to have that exchange of people. And I, I think that's really important if we're going to give the quad any sort of real meaning in the long term.
0: I think that it's always important to end on a high note, John. <laughs> I think yeah, I completely agree. I think certainly my my reflections of, uh, of the few days we had together in Canberra was that it was a really, really positive time. Uh, and that it was you know, just really sort of positive, positive, positive and uplift because we had the research papers, like Raji said, that people are coming to the conversation already with a, a, sort of a shared understanding but but making um, evidence-based, well-thought-through uh, sort of policy recommendations and not not trying to sort of undermine the purpose of the event or the institution but actually how do we push this forward and do so positively and Collectively and coherently, um, and so I think that's even if that's that's the key takeaway. I think that's a great example of what um, institutions like ours uh, can deliver and and seek to deliver in these um, in these interactions with government and and also for a, a broader audience too, which um, is why we are intending to publish those papers. And that was important that from the outset that this not just be a, um, sort of internally. Internally driven, internally facing, um, sort of closed-off conversation, but actually it should be providing, in a very small way, perhaps uh, those public goods, if you will, um, that were discussed at the at the dialogue to that broader audience. So um, I'm afraid I don't have a um, exact timeline to hand. But for anyone listening at home who might be interested in um, reading in more detail some of these papers, they're only. A thousand or two thousand words each, so very crisp, very concise, but um, but but hitting some key policy points. Uh, keep an eye out on the um, National Security College website, and they will all be published there in due course. But um, so thank you again, Raji, John, and Akira, for your positivity and your engagement over the last year, and for um, for being here in this this conversation today. Um, so thank you for joining me on the National Security Podcast. Um, all the best.
2: Thank you, David. Thank, thank you so much. Thanks so much.